0: Stay tuned for an archived edition of Valley Voices. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of Valley Voices. I'm Amy Haddon Marsh, and today's show features a conversation with Ute elder Clifford Duncan. I visited Clifford last January at his home in Roosevelt, Utah. It was a bright, sunny, freezing cold day, and we spent most of it in his living room, surrounded by family photos and accompanied by the sound of a bubbling fish tank and a kitchen clock that emitted animal sounds every so often. We talked about Native American sovereignty, the Northern Utes' relationship with the Bureau of Land Management, and wild horses. The conversation that you are about to listen to begins with a description of the Northern and Southern Utes. Over in this area,
1: we have the uh, Uinta Indians. They were made up of a uh, smaller group, like Bavant is the name of a band, Tempinowats is another band, and, and uh, Yavutage is another one. Then you go into uh, Colorado, you have the Yampatka. Bariannuch, David Mogwach, Kapora, Capora, all of them were uh, of uh, different areas. And they lived all over uh, the, the Ute Nation. The Ute Nation is, uh, I would say, the eastern half of Utah and the western half of Colorado all of that. There was no uh, change of any sort that occurred because they were moving always with nature. And uh, survival was the main thing that was actually uh, leading their lifestyle in such a way that they follow the pattern of say. seasons. Summertime they're uh, high up in the mountains and wintertime they're down to the bottom. And uh, their their thinking was a little different than how it is for us today. Like today I live in a house and I call it home. Mm -hmm. Whereas in those days there was no structure that they could call home but they had that feeling of home everywhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, wherever they moved to, that was their home. Mm-hmm. They call it Tewipua, which is really uh, a land where they belong, mm-hmm. Tiwipua. Like this is my Tewipua, this is my land, or where I'm accepted as being part of that. It's a saying that you're a part of nature the land is you, and you're part of that. And I think that's what made it that way. Mm-hmm. Then time has changed since uh, the latter part of 1800s, when the uh, federal government began to remove the Indians from their original homelands. They put them on reservations. And today we have uh, three separate reservations. Here in uh, Utah, we have uh, the Uinta and O'Ray Reservation. It's made up of uh, three different bands. Originally it was uh, for the uh, Uinta, uh, Utah tribes. Then after 1880, the Meeker incident that they brought in the Yampa tickets, or the so-called White Rivers and the Uncopagris. And they developed the extension they call O'Ray Extension. So they have Yuinton O'Ray Reservation.
0: And that's up here that's in here. Utah.
1: And they then combine those and we just have one. South of Cortez about 10 miles. There's a little community called Mm Toyak. And uh, these are a small group of uh, Utes, the Wiminuch. And they were originally from that same area, Four Corners area. And uh, they might be part uh, Paiutes. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And uh, those that were then later placed in Ignacio, which is about 50 miles east of uh, Toya in Durango area. Those were a group of uh, Utes that were actually in New Mexico. It's latter part of 1800s. And when they uh, removed the Utes from uh, Colorado, they brought those people up from New Mexico and put them over in uh, Ignacio and they've been there since and we call them the uh, Southern Utes because they were to the south. The people up in north around uh, Meeker were called the Northern Utes at certain times. They say Northern Utes from up north. But today we used to have this over here and we call uh, UNO You want to know Ray Reservation is a Northern Ute Reservation. Actually, they're the same. They speak the same language. And uh, there's no difference. They have their separate uh, governing body. And uh, these are like, uh, (coughs) we uh, don't interfere with the Southern Utes. Southern Utes have their own. And uh, it's kind of like controlled by states, too, now, since we're over here in Utah. Most of our uh, relationship is dealing directly with the state of Utah rather than Colorado. And uh, that that separates us because we're originally from Colorado. Mm -hmm. We're Colorado people. Mm -hmm. But we have no connection whatsoever, only in uh, memory that we were there, and the stories, and that's it. Mm-hmm. No uh, legal ties, whereas the Southern Utes, even though if they were in New Mexico, they have legal ties to that place, and they claim that they were the Utes that were there.
0: The Utes in Colorado have a land base in Colorado. Does that mean that the into Uray band does not have a land base here?
1: Not in Colorado. But
0: in Utah, do you? In Utah.
1: Okay. This is our land base today. Are you a sovereign nation? We are considered to be a sovereign nation, a uh, state within a state. Okay. To do our uh, own governing of uh, all activities within a reservation, and that's about it. Okay. But we still comply with federal laws and state laws. And there are many, uh, many hidden uh, aspects of our relationship with the state and the federal that makes that uh, sovereignty uh, shaky.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Because uh, we don't have uh, a total control over that. The control is by another entity.
0: What is that, the BIA?
1: BIA and also the state. Okay. So... To say we're totally sovereign is an error. You know, it's, uh, it's something that uh, is there, but it's not really as it may appear.
0: How is that different than say the Western Shoshone or the Lakota Nation or any of the other native nations and their sovereignty? Is, is there any difference between theirs and the, and the Northern Utes?
1: I don't think they're sovereign. What do you mean? We claim to be sovereign nations. I don't think it's true. When you really take that apart, it appears that way. Like a lot of people say we're a sovereign nation. It's not true. Because they tie down to federal laws.
0: I've heard and read that the Utes had horses before many of the other Native nations on this continent. And that because of this, your people were powerful and very well respected by other Native nations and non-Native people. What is the relationship between Utes and horses?
1: Well, I think horses uh, is actually, uh, it was a tool that was introduced by the Spaniards, say about sixteen hundred when the Spaniards came into uh, what is now New Mexico. They brought with them horses and there were some Utes there and some other tribes probably the, the Pueblos that lived in that area. But the Utes adapted themselves to the, to the use of a horse in such a way that they looked at it like it was a spirit animal that could become part of you or you could become part of it. And then together it could work together. There's a balance between an animal and a person. Mm-hmm. So the Indians begin to use it that way. And uh, they have uh, spirit horses or a spirit way of connecting to that. So there's a certain feeling that it's a spiritual relationship with the land and with the animals. Horses are the same way.
0: How important are horses to the Utes today? Do Northern Youths still use the horses? Well, some of us are still,
1: still with horses. Things have changed since the uh, 50s. How so? Prior to uh, the World War Two, Indians were more like they were still together in such a way that they have communities which was made up of Indians. Mm-hmm. And they were not really going out into the world yet. And then uh, they valued horses to a point where, like, they was the only source of transportation, too. So they had horses. They have uh, wagons, they have saddle horses. And they were more uh, outdoor people. Like hunting, you use horses. You have wild horses, which were still out in the fields and out in the range they had all of that. And after uh, World War Two, people begin to uh, break away from this community setting. And then they begin to uh, get into a more high-tech stuff like cars and TVs and things change and that's when we begin to lose our horses. Today we have only very few people that are actually have herds keeping together horses. I have some horses here, about eight head. Really? So, uh...
0: Where did you get your horses?
1: Well, it's been handed down from my family, my father, and they, just here. And uh, my father owned a lot of horses, I would say about, oh, 70, 80 head of horses. And these were wild horses. But we kept track of them and we branded them and we did what we could do with them. And but once in a while we'd catch a a horse that we want to break or use. And we uh, used to do that. But it was to uh, kind of keep us tied in with nature out out there, you know.
0: Where where would your dad get the horses?
1: My dad had horses that he had acquired from his grandfather's. Mm-hmm. Grandfather, John Duncan, had some horses. He had a lot of horses, and uh, he was also raising cattle. And his father was the same way. So the family have had horses all the way from, say, way back. It was our family way, being an outdoor person, a rodeo person, or a livestock person, having horses with us all the time.
0: Mm Are there wild horse herds on tribal land here?
1: In the southern extension, which is about oh, 30 miles south of here, we have uh, this land over here they call the Oray Extension. Okay. And uh, that was part of uh, the land given to the Uncopogres when they came in from Montrose. Mm-hmm. There, it's uh, more isolated. There's nothing there. Really, there's no communities or anything like that. And uh, the southern end is down book cliffs. It's high country. And uh, it's nice and green over there. And they had horses in there. And these were uh, brought in from, uh, I think, they must have uh, been the uh, Spaniards, then ranchers, then Indians were given horses and a lot of times they lose their horses, they just break away and they became wild. So you yeah, had horses that were out there that are unbranded, they were uh, wild horses in that area. And uh, yeah, about 10 years ago they start uh, weeding them out. BLM wanted to remove some of those horses from their side. So they took away some of the horses from
0: the Indian side. You're listening to a conversation with Ute elder Clifford Duncan, recorded in his Roosevelt, Utah home in January. So it sounds like the horses that are on tribal lands are separate from the BLM horses. Horses don't have
1: uh, (laughs) no sense of boundaries. So if a road is to be... uh, boundary between BLM and Indian land. The uh, horses cross into their land and uh, then the horses that come back come back onto the Indian land again. So that's how come they're shifting back and forth. And uh, some Indians uh, families know what came out of their herd. It's uh, like certain type of horses, like they have buckskin horses. They that Those buckskins are from that herd. That was that family unit a long time ago. So they know who they, who they belong to. It's a matter of just saying, well, that used to be ours. Nobody has a legal tie to them anymore.
0: Does BLM have jurisdiction on tribal lands to round up horses? Can they just come on to the Southern Extension and round up the horses?
1: No, they cannot do that. They can work only on uh, BLM land. If they're going to work with a tribe, they have to work through the uh, tribal council. Mm-hmm. The tribal council then would authorize them to come over and work with them. That the two two uh, entities then work together into providing protection or whatever they can do for the horses together then. It's based on this uh, what they call government-to-government relationship laws that are saying that you cannot do this and that on land which supposedly is sovereign.
0: I think 2002, there was a herd down by Bonanza, and that herd was zeroed out, meaning there is no herd there anymore. The BLM took them all off the range. And um, this summer, the BLM plans to remove all but 50 of the horses at Hill Creek, are those uh, herds on tribal lands?
1: Yeah. Yeah, they shouldn't do that. Why not? Because it's a federal, uh, Indian land. BLM has no right to come onto Indian land to do that. The part that plays a big role in this is the family units that lived in that area. And usually, they're the ones that's going to uh, be involved in it. Because they're going to say yes or no. And the tribal council cannot override or simply ignore that. So uh, the Indians still have uh, that power to control any activities which is going to be foreign, like BLM coming into the tribal land to get horses or even cattle. And that's how that works. There's uh, laws that are supposed to be in place, which uh, is a lot of times being overlooked.
0: I Actually, I read on the BLM website that the Vernal Field Office of the Bureau of Land Management has um, Native American trust responsibilities with the Northern Utes. What does that mean? Well,
1: I don't know. I don't know. It's. Uh, they have a lot of policies which would read like that, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> yet there's a lot of policies either underlying that that takes that away. What do you mean? So, like, can you give an example? they can tell you uh, mm-hmm. you can do this and that here mm-hmm. because this is your country then when we want to say something, they say, no, you can't do that because we have the last say-so. Yet, like uh, oil leases, if a lease is to be in an area where there's a sacred site, the final question would be answered by BLM, Mm -hmm. and they would say, no, we're going to put a well here, and there's nothing you can do about it.
0: Even with the uh, American Indian Religious Freedom Act? Yeah.
1: It's the policies that makes it, and uh, in fact, they don't live up to them. Today, we have uh, high demand for petroleum. So uh, when it comes to uh, leasing land like oil drilling, gas drilling, they're going to go ahead and do it regardless of what the law says, because it's a, there's a demand on that. So the laws has to take a second place. They put them in a back burner, and that's how that works. It's how what they want up front that matters first.
0: The BLM all across the West, last year they rounded up 6,000 horses all across the West. This year... They want to round up twice as many. They want to round up 12,000 horses. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I don't think they really do any more harm than animals. Mm-hmm. If you have a control number of horses out there that's been there and uh, been there for a long time, the vegetation is going to support them. Mm-hmm. It always has supported them. But if they're gonna bring in other things like cattle, then it makes a difference, because they can say, well, we gotta feed the cattle, so let's remove the horses. But to begin with, the horses were there first. You know, and I think horses is part of the land, because they're, they adapt themselves to nature quicker than the cows. And uh, like my dad always say, uh, Horses are easy to take care of because they can do for themselves. But uh, cows, cattle, they're, you gotta baby them. They don't know what to do, when it's especially in wintertime, they're gonna die. And uh, that's where the relationship of horses is more stronger to the land. And they really come with a uh, history of uh, Indian movement across this country. Mm-hmm. And they're an they're the important part of our life, you know, as an Indian. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important. Keep them there.
0: Some of the issues with wild horses is the language that's used to describe them. They're not considered, and this is by the federal government, they're not considered livestock, like cows and sheep. They're not considered wildlife, like deer and elk and antelope and what the BLM calls them is feral and they say that feral means introduced by humans whereas the dictionary definition of feral is living as if they were wild animals and what you're talking about makes me think about this because in order to protect the the mustang which is part of the environment, it's part of nature there has to be some sort of definition in the language instead of just accepting them as part of of nature, does that
1: does that yeah. make sense? I think that's uh,
0: well. That's one way of looking at it.
1: But there's no difference when you look at the entire world. Like we always say, uh, the animals were here first before uh, humans. But they did come from someplace else too. They were introduced by some element, some process, that evolutionary process. So uh, to define them separate would be wrong. And same way with horses, they came here, but they've been here for so long that they become they belong here. And Indians belong here too. The horses became part of this land, and they become part of this the whole environment. If they're if they're a spiritual animals, they a spiritual gift to this land. They belong to the land in a different way. But the PLM is treating them like it's a commodity. They can remove them, but they want to kill them or give them away. For what? (laughs) So that it's a question with no
0: easy answer. Well, thank you very much, Clifford Duncan. Yeah, welcome, Amy.